Hi, and welcome to the 4th U Dimension podcast. My name is Ember Kelly. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm the Director of Religious Education at the 4th Universalist Society in the city of New York. Today's podcast is about the Unitarian Universalist Church and the history of Unitarianism and Universalism, uh, and I'm just really excited to get to sit down and nerd out about church history uh, with Reverend Emily DeTarbert of the Unitarian Church of Staten Island. Reverend Emily, it's so great to sit down with you. It's so great to sit with you, Ember. Thank you for inviting me. So for anybody maybe unacquainted or who's newer to the UU world, what exactly is the Unitarian Universalist Association? So the Unitarian Universalist Association is an association of congregations. Uh, We are a denomination of faith like Methodist or Episcopalian, but we call ourselves an association because our congregations freely choose to be part of our denomination together. And Unitarian Universalism is our faith, coming from our past two denominations, Unitarianism and Universalism. And we are a large faith denomination where we have seven principles we believe in, that we live out common values together, and we don't have a creed. We have a space where you can question, where you can live out and figure out the answers alongside all of us by asking even more questions and living into our values together, whether you're atheist, agnostic, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or just not sure. I mean, and so this is... uh coming from two previous denominations that kind of came together, and both that still kind of exist on their own. Uh, But these are both movements that have a a long history of of theological thought, both in Christianity, but also even in in wider uh, theological circles and in other religions. Yes, uh, these beliefs, the Unitarian and Universalist threads of our history, go all the way back to the early church. And I'm pretty sure that you have some thoughts about the early church, Ember. You might even know a little bit about where some of the origins of these thoughts came from. Well, what would, what would have given you the impression in any of our <laughs> past conversations <laughs> that uh, you see, folks, uh, any time that Reverend Emily and I have sat down, we end up uh, nerding out over, over UU history together. And this is where I got to share all about the research that I had done on uh, the early history of Unitarianism and Universalism, because... Uh, in my past, uh, my past life in evangelical Bible college, uh, I dived into the church fathers. Uh, a lot of the early church writers uh, whose works were preserved were male, so they're largely considered the church fathers because of that. Uh, but they did a lot of writing about what exactly is Christianity as they were kind of trying to define and figure things out and trying to understand uh, what were the core tenets of belief. And as Christianity was adopted by the Roman Empire, that was more solidified into this is what is allowed and this is what isn't. Uh, But there's long been a lot of different threads, and it's interesting that, of course, you said, what is the origin? Uh, Because (laughs) one of the famous early church Unitarians, uh, and in some senses also a universalist, was Origen, and he believed lots of things. Um, He had some very interesting beliefs. Amongst them, uh, he did have some belief in like reincarnation and cycles of the world and all sorts of interesting things there. Uh, But so uh, he is often credited in UU circles as being a very important early figure in the early church history of Unitarian Unitarian Universalism. And he, um, yeah, so he did a lot of writing and specifically Unitarianism 
was part of this debate over uh, was Jesus officially part of God? Was the Trinity a thing? Or was God um, separate from Jesus and God was only one and that there wasn't any possibility? Or there was lots of debate over who Jesus was in relationship to God. And there was lots of relation to debate over who exactly God was and how that would function and work. Um, uh, because, you know, uh, they were in this world of, of Greek philosophy at the time, and they had to have everything figured out and put into nice, neat categories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what they wanted to do. They had to put uh, God into boxes. Uh, and um, uh, there, there was lots of discussion uh, that even included um, at the Council of Nicaea, where the emperor had said, hey, bishops of Christian churches, like, come on down, we're going to sit down and we're going to figure out whether God is a trinity or whether God is one. Uh, because uh, there was uh, a person who was later branded a heretic um, who was named Arius, and he um, believed that Jesus was not co-eternal with God, so that he believed that, that God alone was God and that Jesus was just some sort of like special divine other figure. There was my, my church history professor had this whole thing about, like, uh, um, uh, I think it was actually a thing that really happened. But basically, you know, like, we talk about sports teams, like, chanting things on the streets and making fun of each other. But basically, in the early church, they were doing this, like, at each other on the streets. Like, the, the Arians and the, and the Trinitarians would, like, argue with each other and, like, have chants that they would, like, do with each other. It was like, there was when he was not. It was, like, apparently one of the chants. It was about that there was a time that, that Jesus didn't exist. Um, so, um, church history is weird, guys. Understanding religion, <laughs> Very weird. Um, whatever religious background you're from, take some time to like look into the actual nitty gritty history of it. It is weird, weird, weird stuff. Um, <laughs> but so concurrent with this debate about that was also, um, especially as things became more official in the in the Roman Empire, there was the question of what is hell, uh, because in the early church writings, there wasn't necessarily like a strong feeling one way or the other. And in Jewish thought, from all of my research and understanding, hell isn't really existing in the same way that it has in Christianity ever. Uh, and so this was, this was very much up in the air. But as it became this imperial religion, it was very important that people had something to fear. And going to hell was a perfectly reasonable thing for them to fear. Um, eternal punishment forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, and, but there was plenty of people, Origen being one of them, uh, but others who weren't condemned as heretics, who were held up as, as um, Orthodox folks in the church, who did say, no, like hell, even if hell exists, it's not an eternal punishment. It's like you're just being purified of the bad in you before you go to heaven. So basically hell is more of a purgatory. Um, and that includes, there was a, a Saint John of Damascus, uh, and he um, wrote about that, and I actually um, that when I when I applied for this job, I said that that was my universalist street cred is that I um, wrote a paper about him while at this um, uh, much more conservative seminary, and I got an A on it, uh, arguing that universalism was an orthodox belief in the early church, and that there's no reason why um, all Christians shouldn't be universalists. And I got an A on that paper, and I'm still proud of that all these years later. <laughs> it was a it was an early reflection that I might end up a, a Unitarian Universalist down the line. Wow. So there's a lot you've just unpacked a lot of the 
so many pieces of history and just how far back these ideas unitarian which is not trinitarian the belief of one god and universalism the belief that everybody will ultimately be reconciled with god how far back it goes and how many names and what i love about hearing about saint john damascus and how orthodox and really not very controversial. I don't know. Well, would you say it was controversial to talk about hell after the Nicene Creed was when the Nicene Creed established? Would it like now hell is established and that's that, or or were there still arguments? I feel like it wasn't put in stone. I don't know. I I feel like coming from our contemporary understanding of of hell, and especially um, from my own personal background as like an evangelical Christian with a very very strong. Uh, vision of of hell and how everybody is wrong and everybody that is not the perfect type of Christian is going there. Um, That conception I don't think existed at all in the early church. Like, it was very much like a someplace you should fear, but I don't, like, to me, like, uh, I'm a, I luckily am slightly out of practice or else you might catch me just reciting the Nicene Creed right now. Um, But that was, the debates were much more about who Jesus was and who God was. Like, um, it does say like that Jesus descended into hell, um, but it doesn't say anything about like hell was this p- eternal place of punishment. And I mean, I think the fact that you see like Catholics and Protestant Christians having differences as far as like purgatory, uh, that that there is clearly even up to the time of the Reformation um, debate about how exactly the afterlife works. Like this wasn't something that was even solidified by by the 1500s. And once again, in the 1500s, we find Unitarianism and Universalism popping up as as the Catholic Church kind of loses control yeah. of the narrative. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you that is because it sets the stage for what happened in the Reformation, right? The Reformation, one of the impetuses, not all of it, there was a lot of reasons why Martin Luther stood up, was angry, and put 95 theses nailed into the door of the church. But one of the reasons was because the Catholic Church and the powers that be were using hell to raise money for the church. They were guilting people into buying indulgences so that they could be saved and go to heaven as a way to make money and to keep people in power. Martin Luther was like, this does not make any sense. Uh, He goes and puts these theses on the door saying, no amount of money, no institution, no pope can tell you how to relate to God. It is you and your faith. You reading the scriptures, you interpreting the scriptures, your relationship with God. And that is the impetus for the Protestant Reformation. And that's also why our Unitarian and our Universalist ancestors flourished at the time. Because once you pry that door open, once you say, hey, there's no one institution that controls or defines how you relate to God. Well, then a bunch of other people are like, oh... I guess I have thoughts about how to relate to God, and so do I, and so do I. And our ancestors, or one of the ancestors, Michael Servetus, read the scriptures, inspired by this individualistic faith of God, rereading it, looking for what the true Christianity was, and went in there and saw, oh yeah, there's no trinity. There's no trinity anywhere in the scriptures. I can't find anywhere in the scriptures where it specifically says... That God is in three persons. And he writes books that are pretty deflammatory. In fact, I, I remember quoting this in our last class because I can't believe I read this. He said that those who believe in the Trinity are actually atheists because instead of believing in God, they are turned automatically into three ghosts. 
of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. It's, it, is, it is meant to be angry, deflammatory words that end up sparking people to be pretty mad at him and declaring him a heretic and wanting nothing to do with Michael Servetus. Yes, just like in the early church, they love to sit around and argue with each other. Um, if you ever think that maybe people at church are having too many arguments with each other, remember that that is a long, <laughs> long religious tradition amongst many of the different religious backgrounds. Um, because it, it doesn't go so well for Servetus, who um, <laughs> comes across John Calvin, who is also this reformer. Uh, I went to Calvin College and Calvin Seminary in the past, and it was at Calvin Seminary that I wrote this paper, Defending Universalism. Uh, and uh, perhaps this is why it's poetic justice that I ended up in Unitarian <laughs> Universalism, uh, because so Servetus gets himself uh, in a bit of trouble coming across John Calvin and ends up uh, not being so alive. Exactly. Well, actually, it's, it's funny because, I mean, John Calvin was understanding that a lot of these people who spoke up, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Michael Servetus, at the time, lawyers were biblical scholars. They, they used the Bible and interpreting this Bible as the enaction of laws. Because religion and politics were very closely related in the, in the 1500s in a way that it's not quite now. So there are, there are lawyers that are basically lawyering each other. They're arguing in, in like legal battles over what is the definition of how to act as a church, of how to believe in God. And John Calvin was very much a lawyer. Very legalistic, <laughs> incredibly like pre precise of trying to figure out the, the conundrum of how some people... Uh, are treated unfairly, how some people are, are treated good, how some people go to hell or some people don't. And, and in that lawyeristic mode, he is incensed, incensed by declaring the Trinity as not being true. So Michael Servetus goes underground uh, and actually hides his identity for many years. But then John Calvin publishes a book and Michael Servetus is so mad about what John Calvin says that he writes him a letter, <laughs> personally writes him a letter, even though he's in hiding. And that's how John Calvin alerts the French authorities and the French inquisitors to capture him and burn him at the stake, essentially, as a heretic. If you, if you want uh, exciting reading, I do not recommend John Calvin. Um, <laughs> uh, when we say that he is lawyer, it is, uh, yes, it is, I'm going to... He wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible, and it is, I'm going to pick this apart and uh, and analyze every single word choice and every single... Yeah, it is uh, It is some dry reading. I've, I've done it in the past when I was very much trying to be this hardcore Calvinist. Uh, and so Calvinism, like the, the thought that came out from John Calvin, is obsessed with this, um, are the people that are going to... Um, heaven are they predestined to be there are they uh are they uh is this something that's set way before god even created humanity um are they uh is there only a select few so he comes up with this whole acronym that is still used today um i don't know if the acronym was actually come with by him uh but tulip it's total depravity everybody's horrible and sinned and evil and the worst um unconditional election so that um god has chosen who's going to go to heaven uh, limited atonement, so uh, Jesus's death and sacrifice only counts towards um, that limited group of people that have been selected. Um, and then I is ir irresistible grace, uh, that you can't not, like, you're basically, God has controlled the fact that you're going to become a Christian, uh, and then perseverance of the saint, like, you can't lose your salvation. 
Uh, and so these are like his defining um, themes that come out of his work uh, is all these very strict themes. But what's interesting to me is in the time since the Reformation, uh, the uh, a lot of Calvinist-inspired folks ended up becoming the early settlers of, of America, the Americas, like the Puritans, the Pilgrims. They were from that sort of background. They were kicked out because like, the Episcopalians and the other people, they're like, we, this is too much, guys. Like, we just want to, like, kind of have casual church that we can go to and feel better about ourselves. <laughs> not this, uh, not this everyone's the worst and evilest. Um, and don't celebrate Christmas. The real war on Christmas was started by John Calvin. Um, and, but so the, they come over, they build these bases of, the, of their support in uh, congregationalism in, like, the Northeast. But over time this congregationalism actually pretty much either becomes very hardcore conservative reformed, like of this Calvinist bent, um, that is very like everybody's only specific people are saved, or lots of them as they sit and like be logical, like John Calvin had taught them, are like, wait, maybe not hell? Wait, maybe not Trinity? And so <laughs> yeah. Calvin has this whole anti-Unitarian, anti-Servetus crusade, but lots of the descendants of his branch of the Reformation end up taking a roundabout way to Unitarianism or Universalism in the end. Lots of these congregational town churches were once Reformed churches, and now they are many, many UU churches. Exactly. Like, for, for example, in the, in the United States, because now, now we're going into United States history, where all of these different elements of history... Uh, complexify the context over how these places became Unitarian or in what ways they became Unitarian or Universalist or the religions that they are. But in the United States, you had churches that had these Calvinist, Puritan origins and had ministers who, this was now 200 years after the Reformation, the 1700s. And if you think about the 1700s, 1750s, 40s, 70s, American Revolution's going to be in the future. You see uh enlightenment period all across europe and the enlightenment period really focused on exploding our understanding of the sciences exploring and imploring our use of reason right we now have ministers who are looking at the scriptures saying yeah i, I don't think if god was going to send us a message that god would ask us to turn off our brains it makes sense that we're supposed to use our reason, supposed to use our logic to be able to interpret the scriptures. And that's actually where, in America's context, uh, Unitarianism becomes form. Unitarianism in the United States was specifically a slang term. It was a slang term to existing Christians in Reformed churches who were, oh, you're not Trinitarian, you're not Christian, you're Unitarian. You don't believe in our God. And in, in some ways, Unitarian ministers were afraid of really being public. Until, uh, it was, I think, I'm not, I'm going to get the date wrong. And I'm sorry that I'm going to get the date wrong. Take a best stab at it. So 18, where was it? 17, darn it. The Baltimore, ordin, the ordination in Baltimore where William Ellery um, Channing actually just did a sermon on Unitarian Christianity. He basically just outed himself as a Unitarian Christian. And then, almost like Tulip, he stated five principles. 
Understanding that all of those principles that he creates for the Unitarian Christianity are based on the first, even not even a principle, just a, just an acknowledgement that reason has to be used when interpreting scripture. He lays it down in like two pages of paragraphs about how important it is that reason be the way we interpret scripture. And it's from there that he goes in and says, okay, if we believe that, then we believe that God is one because there is no Trinity in the Bible. If we believe that, then we have no evidence that Jesus was actually divine, that Jesus is a human being and a prophet who taught us to do good. And so, and he takes it like a lawyer, like Calvin, often step by step. If Jesus is not divine, then what is Jesus' point of his life and the story in the Bible? It is to show us how we live in the world, how we can be uh, people who live in the world. So he argues God is one in the moral perfection of God, that Jesus is not God, but Jesus is a prophet who shows us a way. And he ends up with this principle in Unitarianism, which ends up in the future aligning with universalism, salvation by character. That if we look in the scriptures and there is no trinity, but we understand God to be one, that God is loving, that Jesus taught us how to be people, the conclusion is that we should reform our lives to live into good character and that our salvation comes by how we do good in the world, how we live good in the world. Does that still leave room for hell? Absolutely. Is it complex to talk about what early Unitarians believed about hell? I don't have any clear answers, mostly because Unitarians don't really talk about it a lot, to be honest, <laughs> even in, in the ways that they write things. But you'll see how the focus shifts into how do we do good things as human beings with our faith? How do we live in our faith in a good way in this world? And this is in, like, what? The late 1700s, early 1800s, this is long before the social gospel movement in the 1920s, but already asking the questions around social justice is embedded in Unitarian beliefs. Well, at the same time, you had, like, as a, as a bit of a precursor to the social gospel sort of work, was the, the transcendentalist coming out and kind of being like, hey, guys, your church is boring. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, why, why, if, if you've figured all this out about reason and about, you know, who God is, like, why, why is church so boring then? Like, uh, can't uh, can it be a bit more interesting? Uh, but you get folks that are, you know, hugely respected in, in the UU world now, like Thoreau, um, and these folks that are trying to really think about, like, the actions that people are living out. Like, sure, like, you guys have great ideas, but what are you doing? Yes. Um, and there's a whole, the transcendentalists become a major part of, of UU history. I always find this interesting because we keep claiming people in our history. I mean, it's true. These are all pieces of our history, but they were people who at the times rebelled against our previous institutions, right? William Ellery Channing was rebelling against the reformed Christians he, he inherited in his ministry, right? The transcendentalists were rebelling against their traditions. Ralph Waldo Emerson was a minister and quit ministry. He literally quit being a minister because he could no longer serve communion under what he believed communion to be with his transcendentalist ideas versus what was currently happening in the church um, of the Unitarian Church at the time, right? Uh, for transcendentalists, it's, it's also hard and interesting to talk about history because there's so much contextually happening in the world that affects what happens in history, just like our everyday lives. Back then, there was this move 
a reaction to the Enlightenment period of reason and so much reason all the time, cold, hard reason, <laughs> of this romanticism. That's where you see a lot of novelists emerging from England. That's where you see this whole movement, um, uh, the, the romance movement, uh, around where is our feeling? Where is our intuition? And the transcendentalists really wanted to answer that question. The faith isn't just about, okay, mathematically I'm going to reason out exactly how God loves us and how I'm supposed to live in the world. There is something spiritual about religious experience. There's something about feeling and emotion, about heart and intuition, about who we are and, and where we relate in the world beyond mathematical equations or reasoned out answers in books, right? There's a spiritual element there. The whole notion of transcendentalism is transcending into the spirit of God. That there is this spiritual overworld soul that we're all connected to. And how can you take a minute, often they suggest meditating in nature, to find the ways you connect with the world around you, that, you, that you're part of that oversoul, that spirit, that greater purpose and, and love. So transcendentalists charged the Unitarian faith, and to this day I believe still do, where is your heart? How are you actually embodying spiritual practice? How are you loving and feeling, understanding your emotional and spiritual landscape with your faith? Beyond just giving out answers or asking questions, how do we live into what we feel? How do we embody our faith? And that changed the landscape for our Unitarian heritage for the next 200 years. So, as you point out, like these folks are arguing with each other. They're arguing with their, their forebearers. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, this is a pretty regular pattern. It happens. Uh, the generations, they have their differences. It happens. Um, but as also the United States expands via colonization um, and there becomes frontier pastors or there becomes West Coast uh, pastors, you have like the slightly more um, conservative Unitarianism on the East Coast and there, there's suddenly all these differences and they have to navigate um, how to exist together. Um, and so this is me sending you like a nice easy um, pitch here for, <laughs> for getting into one of your favorite things. I to know, talk about I know, I love, I love universalism history. I love talking about this. Is it's the East Coast versus West Coast divide that ended up happening within the denomination, where at one point the denomination was considering splitting off into two different denominations. Um, and to give a little bit of context. Because transcendentalism was breaking open one spirit and embodiment, but also you notice they were breaking open the definition of God. God, at least up to that point, was still a very, the personal God that we think of, like a being of itself, separate and above or other than human beings or the world, right? Transcendentalism was looking at God as part of being human, as part of the world, trying to break open the nugget of redefining what God could be like. Well, that opened, just like I said with the Reformation, you open the door and then there here comes a lot of different interpretations, that opened the door so that early on in the, in the late 1800s, people were already stopping using the word God. They were already wondering, oh, do we have to use the word God to talk about spirit? Do we have to talk about 
God if we want to connect with nature? Is there something more that we can think of when we think of spirituality? Can we be atheists? Can we be agnostic? That was already present, especially in the Unitarian landscape in the late 1800s. But it's still the late 1800s. And if you think about the East Coast, Harvard Divinity School was a Unitarian institution. And any institution has investment in old ways of sustaining power. Right. So in the East Coast, you have Unitarian churches that still haven't really made the Transcendentalist Bridge, are still fairly Christian, serving communion every Sunday, invested in saying the Lord's Prayer, invested in, invested in interpretation of Christianity, and invested in having a root around God. There were at the time, and I could argue there may still be, people who are invested in Unitarian name being associated as a branch of Christianity or as an as a unfolding identity or, or Christian identity. Right. But then you look at this western frontier of ministers, ministers who are atheists, ministers who may not be atheists or who may be agnostic or who may be transcendentalist, who may be just be wanting to do their own thing and they're like, "Well, I can't find any churches that are going to hire me in Boston, so I'm going to go pack up and uh, head west." Uh you have this flourish, expanding flourish of of congregations across the and remember the West back then like began in Ohio. Like this is began from Ohio and Pennsylvania all through all through the to to California. Ohio is truly a wild land. <laughs> <laughs> Says me born and born and raised in Ohio. I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Uh you also have the Iowa Sisterhood, which is a whole contingencies of ministers who are who are women who have spaces to preach because they're in Iowa at the time. And, I mean, it's it's sad that so many of their stories end up, end up ending with male ministers who are finally raised enough money to be hired to take over their positions. But but they have this whole network of, of powerful stories. So you can see there's this more liberal edge, you could say, to Unitarianism that is evolving on the West Coast versus the um, entrenchment of the institution on the East Coast. So there was this division between, oh, if you're Unitarian, it means you have to believe in God. Or does it? And so, to not split, at the Western Conference in 1984, I believe that's the date, I might need to double check, William Channing Gannett, actually not related to William Ellery Channing, but William Channing Gannett ends up writing 10 Things Commonly Believed Among Us. And it is, it just is brilliant. It's my favorite thing to talk about because for me, it proves three things. It proves one, that all along our history, we have always chosen to make room for more inclusive and more diverse voices. That this is a part of who we are at our core as Unitarian Universalists and a part of our theology that is as old as we are. Two, that in this writing, you can already see an attempt to bridge the atheist-theist gap, an attempt to find language that is reverent between the two. And four, as a precursor to our principles, it shows us our theology of how we invest in our values and our actions over our creed. So here's a few excerpts, right? We believe that to love the good and to live the good is the supreme thing in religion. Just take that phrase, right? There's not God. There's not even defining of God. There is the capital G good. 
Later, another one. We revere Jesus and all holy souls that have taught men truth and righteousness and love as prophets of religion. So there is the inclusion of our Christian roots while expanding to have even more diverse and inclusive voices. And it keeps going on like this until it ends in this just beautiful phrase. We worship the one in all, that life when suns and stars derive their orbits, and the soul of the human is aught. That's just the beautiful language of reverence that's trying to be created to hint to this thing that's bigger than ourselves, but that doesn't have to be defined by a label we put on it. Oh, I love talking about this. <laughs> well, and it's, it's really fascinating that both Unitarianism and Universalism, even though they're separate at the time, are kind of coming to similar conclusions about how that, that living out justice is important, that community is important, like that, that it's less about the specifics of what you believe and more about how do we exist together in a respectful uh, and understanding way. And so slowly they move forward, even though they're pretty kind of running on parallel tracks, but they, they have lots of feelings one way and another towards each other. Uh, and fourth universalist, obviously it's in the name, we come from the universalist side of, of that. Uh, the Unitarian Church of Staten Island comes from the other side of that. How so? It's quite the journey. How did how did we end up emerging? Yeah, I'll I'll admit that most of what I've talked about is things that have happened in the Unitarian denomination, and I realize I haven't talked that much about what's happened in the Universalist denomination, uh, who again was an outbranch and reaction against Puritan thought, who. Um, is it okay if I backtrack a little bit? Yeah, fine with me. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> I apologize, everyone. Thank you. But it's, it's just, it's always good for me, and maybe that's why I'm a history nerd, to know the context of where these things came from, right? Mm. So in America, universalism emerged because there was this great awakening of Christian voices that wanted to reemerge and re-empower Christian traditional beliefs. It's kind of like if an evangelical movement voiced up in the 80s today was what happened in the early, we're going back to the mid-1800s, right? Uh, and late 1700s. Well, people didn't want to just continually be guilted about hell. <laughs> what? Like, instead of, instead of maybe hell being the main motivator to keep people in line and to remind people to be good and that God might, I don't know, at any moment open up the floor below you and you'll be swallowed by the fires of hell. Like, maybe that's not the best way or maybe a way to really interpret God. If you think God's all loving, what loving God would ever, ever do that? And that's when you have universalist voices that are saying, yes, if we believe God to be loving, that doesn't make any sense. And it was Hosea Ballou was actually a Universalist Unitarian, who said, you know what's a better motivator than guilt and hell? Pleasure. Happiness. Having people live into love is a better motivator. If God is all-loving, then shouldn't we be? That really is the heart of the Universalist message back then, and then into the future. And as it continues to go and evolved, uh, 
it focuses on social action. It focuses on how do we live the loving in this in this earth. If God so loves us, if there's undeniable and irresistible grace that saves everybody, no matter what, and calls everybody worthy, then how do we create this world to be that? And also, if everyone is saved, and there are different beliefs and traditions, I wonder what that might tell us about those beliefs or traditions. What if they're also slightly right or have some truth about God, right? There, it, it takes a few decades <laughs> to make that switch. <laughs> it takes some work to make that switch, but you'll see that like, if, if a creed doesn't prevent you from going to hell, it, what does that mean about other traditions and what wisdom they had to tell us? Universalists were already on being a pluralistic place that had people of different traditions that were learning from Judaism, were learning from other faiths to know about God because everyone was worthy, right? So while universalists at the turn of the 1900, uh, the 20th century, were distinctly Christian, and they were Trinitarian, most of, most of them, they focused on welcoming all, enjoying the wisdom of, of the world's religions, being pluralistic, and living their, their faith into action. And that's what made them pretty parallel to the Unitarian faith. Right. It would be in the 1920s when Universalist speakers, especially Clarence Skinner, would follow in the direction of the social gospel of trying to... He wrote the book, The Social Implications of Universalism, and in there... I feel it is certainly a book about the social gospel. I think uh, some other seminarian friends of mine also have argued the same thing. Thank you, Reverend Kimberly Davis uh, and Gary Dorian, uh, who he talks about how if we believe that we're all saved, where is hell? It's on earth. Look around, he says. Look around. Who? How does people are hungry? People are starving. There is sickness. There is racism, there's oppression. Here is where the hell is. And we are called to do whatever we can to get hell out of the world. That is where universalists were in the 1920s. So you can see that they were in fairly close relationship with the actions, with the beliefs, with the same mentality of Unitarians, and that's how they merged in the 1960s. I'm not saying it was an easy merger. There are plenty of Universalists who were upset, including this congregation, I believe, yes? Fourth Universalist voted against the merger, but then did approve joining the merger after it had happened. Yeah. And I know that for some generations of Universalists that are still in our faith, there is still hurt about feeling like they've left the Trinity behind. <laughs> Or feeling like some of their Christianity is no longer a part of our faith. Um, and at the same time, we have a whole subset of Unitarian Universalist Christians. They're still here. And just to make sure everyone knows, especially in modern Unitarian Universalism, you can believe in the Trinity and be a Unitarian Universalist. Um, my mom is a perfect example of this as a very Catholic UU. <laughs> I was going to say, one of those people might even be on this very podcast. Yay! <laughs> um, it, it doesn't quite work. I can be a, a, a two, a Trinitarian, Unitarian Universalist. Um, there we go. Um. <laughs> well, I think because 
you'll see that the evolution of where we've come from is no longer arguing about what does the Bible say about what we should believe. Where we are now, in since the 20th century but into the 21st, is how do we relate to each other, covenant with each other, hmm. hold each other accountable to living into the beliefs that we have? How do we have faith? Not why we have faith or what... I mean, why we have faith too, but not what our faith is. Not like, let's go ahead and say this one sentence that is our faith and that is that. No. I think it's a much richer conversation and a charge and nearly impossible to choose to be in community with people who believe differently than you do because it's going to enrich your faith, it's going to help you live out your values, and it's going to help make the world a better place. Mm. That's beautiful right there. Oh, oh gosh, I'm trying to think about how to follow that up after, after <laughs> I just want to sit here with that profoundness. Uh, but, you know, I think that there's so much truth to that because Unitarian Universalism, when it merged, was still used predominantly Christian language. But we've grown as a denomination since the 60s to come to understand how our communities are enriched by uh, recognizing the importance of values of all of these tra different traditions, as well as our atheist and agnostic and humanist uh, members, and that we can coexist and find that, that community together, and that uh, ultimately it's not so much about, you know, I think one of the things that when you look at the, the principles, as we slowly move towards an eighth principle, uh, they are about um, not so much, you know, here's the Nicene Creed that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but instead, we believe in the worth of each other. We believe in acting for justice. We believe in making sure everybody has a voice. These are actions. These are about community building and not about, um, not about like what you have to believe to be part of the community. I think it's it's one of the really beautiful things about Unitarianism, Unitarian Universalism, uh, because like you know, like what you were saying that. Uh, there's challenge in um, existing in a space where not necessarily anybody in the same congregation has the exact same beliefs. But I'm going to let you in on a little bit of secret as somebody from a predominantly Christian background. That's mostly the case in Christian backgrounds yep, too. Yep. All those people are sitting there believing different things as well. Um, but what I think that the UU world has done well is begin to realize how we can actually let that, like you said, enrich uh, our own journeys by, I, I love the fact that I get to be in community with all of these people that are very different from me. It's so, such a beautiful part of, of my life. Um, I don't want to, I, what, what would you like to, to like, how has, you are a lifelong UU. Um, so I'm coming at this with this, this newbie UU rose colored glasses about how wonderful it is. <laughs> um, and you, Unitarian Universalism in my, short nearly year and like four months i think and so in the year and four months that i have been unitarian universalism i have come to appreciate lots of these things but what are some of the things that you appreciate about unitarianism unitarian universalism uh, i've gotten used to separating them at other points in this podcast now i gotta put <laughs> them back together but what what's why why you you ministry why um have this be something that matters so much to you like what why why does this matter Ooh, uh put me on the spot there why don't you uh look unitarian universalism like any faith is definitely not perfect 
we have a lot of growing edges to do. Like many denominations, like many faiths, we have to confront our heritage, both the ones we lauded like today and also the ones that we want to ignore uh, sometimes, uh, but are so important to uphold, like our histories and legacies of white supremacy, of colonialism, of imperialism, those are with us too. Um, we are a complex faith tradition, but why I love this faith so much, not only because I felt it's been the heart of me for such a long time. When I read this history, I started reading history like this when I was in high school. And at the time, my uh, UU congregation I grew up with didn't necessarily talk a lot about Unitarian versus theology. But I read it and I was like, oh, I'm not alone. Other people believe in the things I believe in and, and they lived 300 years ago. Um, I found myself in our UU history and our UU theology in the past. And why I'm still called today is the aspiration that we have as a faith. I love being in a faith that doesn't judge me when I have hard days and don't know what I believe in. I love being part of a faith that acknowledges that faith is not always easy. It's not always pretty. It doesn't always have answers. I love being a part of a faith that allows me to question, to live into the questions, to find what makes me feel the most authentic and to know that that means that it can change. I love a faith that allows me to grow, to evolve my beliefs. I have been through all of them. I've been atheist and humanist and theist and try to figure out other things. I've had times when I don't even know what I'm doing that day, and I have other times when I am relieved in my belief in God. And all of them have never been antithetical to how I am Unitarian Universalist. It is an expression of my Unitarian Universalism. It is an acceptance that faith is an ongoing, changing journey, and that I'm not doing this alone. Other people who don't believe in the same things I do chose voluntarily to be with me on this path of trying to live our values and make the world a better place. That, that is what I'm called to. And I know it may never be fully realized and I know it may never ever be perfect. It'll be hard, but it's worth the hardship because I think it helps to build the world we wanna see. Reverend Emily, that was beautiful and <laughs> profound once again. Um, I'm gonna maybe I'll save these clips for later for me to listen to, but I am honored that I got to sit down and be uh, his, a UU and just general religious history nerd with you today. It's <laughs> it's been it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor, and thank you so much. And thanks to everyone at Fourth Universalist and your unique history that continues to inspire uh, your action and your commitment to our values and our Unitarian Universalism here on the Upper West Side uh, continue to be the incredible congregation and community that you are.